listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Now would be the time for the scripture reading. Uh, today's scripture reading is Romans 14, 1 through 17. Welcome those who are weak in faith, but not for the purpose of quarreling over opinions. Some believe in eating anything while the weak eat only vegetables. Those who eat must not despise those who abstain, and those who abstain must not pass judgment on those who eat. For God has welcomed them who are you to pass judgment on servants of another. It is before their own Lord that they stand or fall, and they will be upheld for the Lord is able to make them stand. Some judge one day to be better than another, while others judge all days to be alike. Let all be, let all be fully convinced in their own minds. Those who observe the day, observe it in honor of the Lord. Also those who eat, eat in honor of the Lord, since they give thanks to God, while those who abstain, abstain in honor of the Lord and give thanks to God. We do not live to ourselves, and we do not die to ourselves. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, so that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother or sister? Or you, why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each of us will be accountable to God. Let us therefore no longer pass judgment on one another, but resolve instead never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in, a, in the way of another. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. If your brother or sister is being injured by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Do not let what you eat cause the ruin of one for whom Christ died. So do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not food and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Thanks for that reading, Zach. <clears throat> so how are we all doing today? Are we good? Are we, com- are we coming off of like good weeks for, for most people at least? Hopefully got some thumbs up. From the balcony, excellent. Um, I'm coming off of a pretty average week myself, but it started on a particularly high note. Many of you know my son Zeke. Many of you have met uh, this guy. He is three years old. He just turned three uh, exactly a month ago, actually. Our latest adventure with him has been potty training. And if you've met this, if you've met my son, you know that he is adorable. He is a little bundle of energy. And he's not quite at the point yet, developmentally, where he knows to disregard his own excrement, if you know what I mean. Um, That, like, natural revulsion most of us have to, like, human waste, he has none of it. Which has led to some, like, really unpleasant moments, usually uh, in the middle of the night when he will wake my wife Erin and I up with a surprise, um, sometimes that he has spread all over his room. But Monday morning, this past Monday, 6 a.m., Zeke comes running into our bedroom totally pantsless, like pants, socks, pull-up, just gone. 
And he was like, Mommy, Daddy, I pooped. And I was like, oh no, not again. And so I think it was my turn. I got up. I followed him down the hallway into the bathroom where he had successfully pooped in the potty for the first time. That's right. By himself, there was no mess. I was so excited, I took a picture, sent it to the grandparents. Thought about showing it here in church, but I, I think that would probably cross a line. Is that, is that right? Yeah. So we didn't do that. Um, that was a great start to the week. If you see Zeke later today, give him a congratulations. Maybe don't shake his hand, um, <laughs> but we want him to get all the positive reinforcement he can. In other news, we're in the book of Romans. Is that for a transition? Uh, we're, we're in Romans. We've been working our way through Romans for six months now. This is the exact six-month point, actually, believe it or not, and we are almost done. We only have three more weeks to go in Romans, if I did the math right. Some people are clapping already. Very good. That passage Zach just read for us, um, it's the first half of a much bigger section in the letter where Paul addresses this conflict that's happening in the Roman churches between two groups that he calls the weak and the strong. We see this, right, this language of weak and strong right in the opening of chapter 14, uh, verse 1. Welcome those who are weak in faith. And then Paul uses similar language again in chapter 15. We who are strong ought to put up with the failings of the weak. This whole conversation about the weak and the strong, um, it starts at verse 1 of chapter 14, and it runs almost halfway through chapter 15 to like, I think it's 15 verse 13. So this is a big section. We're going to try to kind of cover all of it today together. Um, I want to say, though, if you really want to get the full scope of this, if you really want to understand what's going on here, I would highly recommend that you make it a point later this week to read this section of the letter. Sit down today, tomorrow, um, read from 14.1 to 15.13, and you will get a much better grasping of the whole thing, because we're not going to read all that here. That would be a lot. <laughs> There's a lot of content to cover in one sermon, so we're going to cover it in three chunks, or really three questions that we're going to ask to kind of divide this up. First, we're going to talk about the conflict between the weak and the strong. What is the issue going on here? Then we're going to talk about the identity of the weak and the strong. Who are these people, these two groups? And then third, we're going to talk about Paul's advice to the weak and the strong and how that advice might guide us as a church at similar times of conflict. Does this roadmap make sense? Excellent. Let's dive right in because there's a lot here. (laughs) We'll start with the first uh, question. What was the issue, the conflict between the weak and the strong? I'm going to reread some of this. Romans 14, beginning in verse 1. Welcome those who are weak in the faith, but not for the purpose of quarreling over opinions. Some believe in eating anything while the weak eat only vegetables. Those who eat must not despise those who abstain, and those who abstain must not pass judgment on those who eat, for God has welcomed them. Who are you to pass judgment on servants of another? It is before their own Lord that they stand or fall, and they will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make them stand. 
Some judge one day to be better than another, while others judge all days to be alike. Let all be fully convinced in their own minds. Those who observe the day, observe it in honor of the Lord. Also those who eat, eat in honor of the Lord, since they give thanks to God. While those who abstain, abstain in honor of the Lord and give thanks to God. So in like one or two words, what's the conflict at play here? Anyone who wants just like shout out some of the, the issues, if you, if you know. Oh, when the teacher does this, it's the worst. What'd you say? No, nothing. Food, right? Eating meat, that seems to be one issue. And holy days, like observing certain days. Food and days seems to be the issue here. Um, We've got one group in these churches, um, the weak who don't eat meat, which I think we can take as as just a blanketed condemnation of all vegetarians. I'm kidding, that's a joke. They have the weak who don't eat meat, and then the strong who do eat meat. Vegetarianism is fine. That was a a joke. Sorry. But then beyond that, Paul doesn't give us a lot of data. There's not a lot of information here about what the issue is. We don't know why the weak are abstaining from meat and why the strong are eating it. We don't know um, which sacred days are being disputed and by whom. Is it the weak who observe it and the strong who don't? Paul doesn't tell us. There's a lot here that we don't know. But we can make some educated guesses. When it comes to eating meat, there are a few reasons that Christians back in the first century might have abstained from eating meat. The first possibility is that these were Jewish Christians who were still um, trying to keep kosher. Um, If you know anything about the kosher food laws from the Old Testament, it's stuff like, you know, don't eat pork, don't eat shellfish, don't mix meat and dairy. When you do eat meat, it has to be prepared in a certain way with all the blood drained out of it. Leviticus, any Leviticus fans in here? No, that is okay. Those are the kosher food laws, though. And it's possible some of these Christians were Jews who were still keeping those kosher food laws. And for a lot of Jewish folks, even today, if you're not sure what you're eating, like maybe you're at a restaurant, or you're at a friend's house, you're not quite sure what's on the plate, how it was prepared, an easy way to be safe is to just go vegetarian. Don't eat meat, and you should be safe. So that's one possibility. Another possibility is that this conflict had to do with meat that was sacrificed to idols. Um, In the ancient world, you basically had all these local temples to different local deities, and the the surplus meat from the sacrifices would often be sold to the local market at a discount. So like when you go to the grocery store to buy meat, there's a good chance that meat might have been sacrificed to some local pagan deity, some other god. We know this was an issue uh, for some of the early Christians, both Jews and Gentiles. Uh, Paul mentions it in some of his other letters. And uh, a lot of Christians early on had real issue with this. So that's one possibility, meat sacrificed to idols. A third possibility is that this was just extreme asceticism, self-denial. You had a lot of these, um, these holy movements, these monastic movements in the ancient world, kind of like monks, who would practice extreme self-denial to kind of prove their faithfulness to God. They would fast for a very long time. They wouldn't bathe in some instances. They would abstain from meat 
That happened among, uh, there were Jewish groups like that and Gentile groups like that. So that's another possibility. So it could have been any one of these, or it could have been something totally different that we don't know about. How's that, how's that for broad? This is the sort of thing, though, that it could have been. Um, similar with the holy days, we don't really know what was going on. Was it an argument over whether or not to keep Sabbath? Maybe. Um, should Christians worship on Saturday or Sunday? That's a possibility. Could have been a question of whether or not uh, Jewish Christians, ethnically Jewish Christians, should still keep Jewish holidays and feast days, or whether Greek Christians should observe government holidays, stuff like, I don't know, Flag Day and Thanksgiving. We really don't know. There's a lot of detail here that's missing. But we do know the effects of this conflict, whatever it was. It was causing division in the church. It was prompting these Roman Christians to condemn each other, despise each other, and split into two groups labeled the weak and the strong. That brings us to question number two. Who were these people? Who were the weak and the strong? A lot of folks uh, have theorized this was like a Jewish-Gentile conflict, right? Especially, that would make sense if this was about kosher food laws and Jewish holidays, all right? Um, that's a possibility, but it might not be that. Paul, throughout the letter to the Romans, has been addressing conflict between Jews and Gentiles. That's come up an awful lot as we've worked through this letter together, but he doesn't use that language here. There's a little bit in the middle of, um, kind of towards the end of this section, middle of chapter 15, where Paul talks about the, the Gentiles being included in the church, but that's not the language he uses for the two groups. He calls them the weak and the strong. Who were the weak and the strong? Weak and strong is not religious language, at least not overtly. That wasn't the customary way to talk about this. In uh, verse 1 of chapter 14, we do get this phrase, welcome the weak in faith. But that's one of those lines where it could just as well be translated, in faith, welcome the weak. We're not quite sure of the word order there. It could kind of go either way. So it's not obvious that this is a faith issue, exactly. The language of weak and strong was not typically used in a religious setting, but it was used in another setting. Social hierarchy. Class divides. Ancient Rome was an extremely hierarchical society. I've got a picture here. You've got Caesar at the top with um, all the ruling elite. Down at the bottom, you would have had uh, slaves, immigrants, children, the poor, very structured. Everyone knew exactly where they were, which class or which caste you fit in in society. And this is actually the language where weak and strong came from. To be strong was to be in a higher social class, and to be weak was to be in a lower social class. So like Paul says, weak and strong, today we might say the powerful and the powerless, the haves and the have-nots, those with influence and those without. You're getting kind of the idea here of this divide? Think about all the issues that can split Christians today. 
Stuff like doctrinal disputes. Um, differences in worship. Do we prefer traditional hymns with organ and liturgy, or do, are we into more contemporary praise and worship music? Personality conflicts, factions, political divisions. Whether you want to see a more activist church that's engaged in the important issues of the day, or if you want to see a church that kind of stays out of that stuff. We like to think all this stuff is purely ideological. It's just a difference of opinion. When in reality, there's almost always a power factor at play. One group has power, the other doesn't. One group's in the majority, the other's the minority. One side has the pastor's ear. Uh, Maybe they're the establishment or the big givers, uh, the families who's been part of this church for generations. The other group, they're the newbies, the upstarts, the non-members, people who maybe lack the financial resources to support the church financially. Those are all power dynamics. When Paul uses the language of weak and strong, he's not necessarily saying which group he agrees with. He's pointing out the fact that there are power dynamics at play. We think about all the disputes in society today, which often work their way into churches. All those social divides, economic divides, class and race divides, The kind of stuff that's especially heightened in like an election season. Maybe the police officer and the protester. That is not an equal picture there. There's a clear imbalance of power. Or you could take like your white, suburban, college-educated liberal and your white, rural, non-college-educated conservative. It's not just a difference of opinion. There are very real social and economic imbalances at play there. Whether we're talking about women's rights or civil rights, LGBTQ rights, we like to pretend that all of these are just issues that you fall on one side or the other when there is far more at play. The weak and the strong. Whenever there's a dispute, especially in the church, we have to be mindful of these divisions. Is this a conflict between a woman and a man? And if so, are there some power dynamics at play there? Is it between young people and old people? Folks who are longtime members and newer members, those are all power dynamics, the weak and the strong. Who has power and who doesn't? Whenever we have conflict in the church, we have to be thinking about those questions. And that actually brings us to the third question. Talked about the conflict between the weak and the strong, what it could have been. We talked about who the weak and the strong might be, these power dynamics. But what is Paul's advice to the weak and the strong? What does Paul actually tell these people to do about their differences? And what guidance can that give us in similar instances of conflict? 
we saw one piece of the answer. Uh, it's in verse, starts in verse 3. It picks up especially on this question of power. Those who eat must not despise those who abstain, and those who abstain must not pass judgment on those who eat, for God has welcomed them. Who are you to pass judgment on servants of another? It is before their own Lord that they stand or fall. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? They're not your servant. You're not their Lord. These power dynamics that we encounter when we leave the four walls of the sanctuary, they don't belong in here. Because in here we only have one Lord, and that's Jesus. And he's the Lord of all of us. The shorthand for this would be don't judge, but I really want to make sure you catch this. I want to make sure you understand why we're not supposed to judge. This isn't some like loosey-goosey, anything-goes sort of thing. And this isn't some sort of like vanilla, boring, live-and-let-live message. We don't judge each other because judgment assumes power. And in this church, we check our power at the door when we come into worship together. When you pass judgment on another Christian, when you condemn another Christian, you are putting yourself in a position of power and authority over them, but they only have one Lord, and it's not you. This is true whether you've been a member here for five years or 50 years. It doesn't matter if you serve on the board, if you've served in various ministries, if you're a big giver. It doesn't matter if you're rich and they're poor or vice versa. It doesn't even matter if you're the pastor. If you've been to seminary, you've studied this stuff, and you're in conflict with someone who's maybe only been a Christian for a few months, you still serve the same Lord and that's Christ. I am not your master, and you're not mine either. I get to say that. I love Paul. No one in this church should be passing judgment or condemning anybody else because we serve one master. That's don't judge. This gets better and better, you guys. It's one piece of the advice Paul gives us. Don't judge. Another is to respect the convictions of other Christians. Verse 5. <clears throat> Some judge one day to be better than another, while others judge all days to be alike. Let all be fully convinced in their own minds. Those who observe the day observe it in honor of the Lord. Also those who eat, eat in honor of the Lord, since they give thanks to God while those who abstain, abstain in honor of the Lord and give thanks to God. This is huge. Paul's saying here that as Christians, we have the ability, you have the ability, through the guidance of the Holy Spirit and the witness of Scripture, to interpret the faith for yourself, to form your own convictions. And not only that, not only do we have the ability to form our own convictions on matters of faith, 
but we should also respect the convictions of other Christians with whom we disagree. Paul sounds like a Baptist here, almost. Big surprise, I read Paul and he sounds like a Baptist. See, though, what happens, I think, in churches, oftentimes, we assume that our convictions are the only right ones. Whatever God has put on our heart, whatever God has led us to, that's the truth, end of the story. Whether it's our approach to the faith, our reading of the Bible, our traditions, our denomination, how we worship, we assume that we're right and everyone else is wrong. It's a little narcissistic. And then when we encounter other Christians with different convictions, oftentimes we call their faith into question. You see Christians throwing around charges of heresy at other Christians. Accusing people of not following the Bible, not following Jesus, when really our, our problem is that they're not following us. This is very dangerous. Because when this happens, when we get dogmatic and start condemning our fellow Christians, we are mistaking our own convictions for the will of God. You don't want to play that game. We assume that our beliefs, our convictions, are God's convictions. But you are not God. And the other Christians you encounter are not you. Just because God has placed something on your heart does not mean God is going to place the same thing on someone else's heart. So what does Paul tell us to do? What's the advice here? Those who observe a sacred day, observe it in honor of the Lord. Those who eat meat, eat meat in honor of the Lord. Those who abstain from eating meat, abstain in honor of the Lord. Whatever convictions God has placed on your heart, honor them and honor God, but also honor the convictions of other Christians with whom you happen to disagree. So don't judge. Respect the convictions of other Christians. Are we, are we into this so far? Are we liking this? Is this good stuff? Excellent. Third piece of advice from Paul, and this one's a little more well-known. <clears throat> Don't cause anyone else to stumble. This is the famous one, verse 14. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. If your brother or sister is being injured by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Do not let what you eat cause the ruin of one for whom Christ died. Incredible. Similar idea down in verse 19. Let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything indeed is clean, but it is wrong for you to make others fall by what you eat. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that makes your brother or sister stumble. As Christians, we enjoy an enormous amount of freedom. We don't follow a works-based religion. Your salvation is not something you have to 
earn or achieve by following the rules and doing enough good works. Salvation is a free gift that is offered through grace to all who give allegiance to Christ. It's like the whole argument of Romans, by the way, if you haven't caught on six months in. That's like Paul's thesis. That gives us a tremendous amount of freedom. We don't have to obsess over the boundaries, uh, determining who's in and who's out, following the rules, figuring out how far is too far, what sin can I get away with and still be in. No, Christianity doesn't work that way. But, just because you have the freedom to do anything does not mean you should do anything especially if it causes another Christian to stumble. Best example I could think of with this is alcohol. So if you're of age, which I think most of us in here are probably of age, if you're of age, there's nothing wrong with having a drink of alcohol. That's fine. But there are Christians who don't drink, who don't believe in drinking. Maybe they come from a more conservative background and they think it's a sin. Maybe they're a recovering alcoholic and they're trying to stay sober. Maybe they had uh, alcoholics in their family and they don't even want to open that door a little. Maybe they just don't like the taste. Whatever the reason, when you're around a Christian who doesn't drink alcohol, you should not drink alcohol. It's not time to debate them start an argument, or try to enlighten them, help them see the light and leave their fundamentalism behind? No. If you're with a Christian who isn't comfortable with alcohol, you don't drink alcohol. Period. Because they are your brother or your sister in Christ. And that matters more than being right or exercising your freedom. If they abstain, you abstain. Don't cause anyone else to stumble. That's called grace, by the way. And if someone happens to be coming from like a more fundamentalist background, that might be the first act of grace they've seen in a long time. So again, Paul's advice to navigating church conflict, don't judge. Respect the convictions of other Christians Don't cause anyone to stumble, and one last piece of advice, welcome one another. Chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong ought to put up with the failings of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Each of us must please our neighbor for the good purpose of building up the neighbor, for Christ did not please himself. Welcome one another, therefore, just as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Welcome one another. These last, like, what, six, seven months or so of pandemic have been a very interesting time to do church. It's been challenging. In some ways, it's been exciting. We've been stretched to try new things. We've enlarged our footprint online so we can welcome more people virtually. We've been uh, challenged to welcome and include folks for whom worshiping in person is not safe. And we've also been able to welcome a lot of new visitors 
who have checked out our church since we've reopened in August. I'm really excited to see what our congregation looks like, hopefully in a few months, once COVID-19 is behind us. We're growing even through this pandemic. But here's the thing. If that keeps up, if we keep growing, if, if people from the community keep discovering what we're doing here and wanting to be part of it, there's going to be conflict. New people bring new expectations, new needs, new ideas, new ways of doing things. That's going to prompt change, and change is really hard. Especially if you've called this church your home for years. But Paul tells us to welcome one another. And that doesn't just mean like saying hi and giving people a coffee tumbler, although that's a nice touch. Welcome goes a little bit further than that. Welcome one another just as Christ has welcomed you. Christ died for you, right? That's an awfully high bar. It's kind of terrifying if you really think about what Paul's saying there. And yet this is what we're called to do. Don't judge. Don't draw lines. Don't divide between us and them, the weak and the strong. Don't assume a place of power and privilege just because you're the establishment. Respect the convictions of other Christians. Accept that we're not going to agree on everything, and that's okay. We're not going to see eye to eye all the time. We don't have to agree to love each other. Don't cause anyone else to stumble. So, like, don't provoke another Christian. Don't put them down to build yourself up. Don't push another Christian into bitterness or shame. Don't let the urge to be proven right distract from the responsibility to love. And welcome one another. Even when we disagree. Even if we're coming from different backgrounds, different ways of doing church, different cultures, different expectations, welcome everyone as Christ has welcomed you. This is what true welcome looks like, and it's not easy, but it is what's expected of us. And if this church is going to continue to grow and have the impact that we want to have here in Brockport, this is what it's going to take. Let's pray. God, we want transformation. We want to change the world and we want to start with this village. We want to be agents of the gospel, Lord, agents of love, of justice, of grace, your grace. And God, we know that you have appointed others in this community who share in that vision. Folks who might be friends, who might be neighbors, relatives, who maybe don't have a church to call home right now, but who might one day call this church home. 
God, give us the grace to receive them. Prepare our hearts for the people you are preparing to lead and be a part of this church. Help us not to judge. Help us to respect each other and to welcome difference of opinion. God, don't let us cause anyone to stumble, but empower us, Lord, to welcome every single person who comes through these doors. We ask for all this in your son's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.